my 11 year old told me I was clearly not cool enough to do this. You're like, oh, you? <laughs> I hate to break it to your 11 year old. I'm going to talk about fun but... stuff. And he's like, really? <laughs> yes, tell him you were amen. cool. Tell him we even sang win win. We didn't do the there gritty on it, but we would have a good time. <laughs> How about that? Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. So excited to be back in your earbuds this month with our full team plus a special guest. We're so excited to have this conversation today about innovation and change in organizations and really thinking about a, a case example of what that looks like to highlight someone from our community at CFHA and the work that they've done. But first, we're going to start with our introductions, like we always do. I have to tell you, as always, or a lot of the times, I'm pulling this question kind of from my personal life. So listeners know that I've got four kids. Um, I've got, now they're old compared to when we started the podcast. I have Henry, who is eight and in second grade. And then I have Alex, James, and Luke, who are triplets, who are in kindergarten, and we are busy all the time. Um, and this year, I've decided as like the year of extracurricular activities. They're big like gamer kids. In fact, the triplets discovered that esports are a thing and they want to join an esports league. And I was like, I don't think that exists for kindergarten yet. We're going to have to wait. Um, but so we're trying other extracurriculars. So I put them in something called Kids Strong, uh, which turns out is a little bit like Children's CrossFit, um, but they're loving it. Uh, and then Henry has gotten to start Lego League, which is just lighting up his whole world. But it's had me thinking about my own childhood and extracurriculars that we did. And I was a band nerd, probably surprising no one, um, and did like academic team and just nerdy things. Um, and But I'm curious to hear from our team and what kinds of things that you were involved in. It's always fun to hear about that. So as we're going around, we'd love for you to share your favorite extracurricular as you introduce yourself. So moving around the circle from my perspective, uh, first we have Bridget Beachy. Uh, my name is Bridget, and I'm a licensed psychologist by trade and work as a BHC and BHC director in the state of Washington. Yeah, that's uh, interesting about the extracurriculars. I don't think it'd be a surprise to anybody either on my end. Um, it was all the sports. So, you know, I started playing, I guess it was called mush ball. So it's different than t-ball. So it's like a baseball, but it's just a little bit softer than a, like a hard ball. And they do pitch it to you still like underhanded. So like there was no T-ball and I was, you know, super small kid, you know, super, super lean. Uh, we'll use that term. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I, when did I break hundred pounds? I don't know, maybe sophomore year in high school. And so I get up there and my dad tells a story how like, it was like the first practice of mush ball. And I'd been playing backyard, everything with my brother and cousin uh, for, you know, at that point for probably a couple of years. And so I get up there with the bat and I guess he pitches it to me like really, really, really soft. And I guess I hit it and hit him right uh, in a sensitive area. And he was like, you know, the coach was over there like dying because he just couldn't believe that like, you know, he's over there pitching <laughs> and really soft to me. And I'm over there and then I crash. <laughs> um, so that's one of my favorite, uh, one of my dad's favorite stories he likes to tell about me and um, at that point I would have been six years old so yeah a lot of sports and um, I also did love to read 
uh, and I like competition. So we'd have all those, like how many books you could read. And I remember I just like, it didn't matter. I'd read like three books in a day for hours. So it's it's kind of an interesting mix between like reading and then sports. Bridget was like, forget this mush ball. <laughs> uh, it doesn't surprise me a bit. Uh, next, we have Neftali Serrano. Good to be here, everyone. My name is Neftali Serrano or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association and uh, passionate about all things integrated care. So happy to be here. Happy to see all your uh, bright, smiley faces um, all right. So my childhood, so remember, I'm a, I'm a kid of immigrant parents. So there were no extracurriculars is the reality. <laughs> it was like, there was play. Um, so what I'll tell you about is one of the things that were, I, I most look forward to when I would go to school, public school in New York City. Now it's not PC. And I, I, I don't know if this is this game is even still around today. If it is, it shouldn't be called this because it's not not a nice thing. But is the game we played a game before and after school called suicide. What it was was this. It's this ball game. Again, we're a bunch of city kids, right? It's this ball game with a wall. You know, you have a, this the wall of the school outside. Uh, basically, you throw the ball against the wall, and if someone catches the ball on the fly then they get to peg you with the ball. So, so, and if they peg you with the ball, then <laughs> this is, this just sounds horrible when I'm like describing it, but then you have to stand up against the wall and you have to pick a position and stay still. You cannot move. And the person who pegged you gets a chance to, from a distance, peg you once again without you moving. <laughs> So the the point of the game was obviously the way you avoid that is actually you have to run to the wall to tag it if you don't want to get uh you know pegged and put into the suicide position. So that was that was the game. It was like intense, like you know, we were, you know, I would be sweating out there like I don't want to get pegged. I don't want, you know, but that that was, you know, that was growing up in the 80s as a kid in New York City, I guess. That was actually would have made me cry. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to do it. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I yeah. went straight to the uh Neftali. This sounds like hazing of some sort. I don't know what y'all's <laughs> out there doing, but this does not sound right. Like a dodgeball with an edge. <laughs> High stakes. <laughs> it's a perfect, it's a perfect like Gen X descriptor game. <laughs> it was like no tact, you know, totally not PC and uh dangerous. I'm not sure why there were no school officials around telling you we couldn't do that. Because it was the 80s. <laughs> oh, it was well, the school wall. Like uh, it was the outside in the school courtyard. So, oh my goodness. I'm positive that game probably still exists with a different name, hopefully, these days. But nothing, no, there's nothing new in the world. Uh, next, we have Jen Thomas. Hi guys, I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine uh, provider in Morris, Illinois. I do a little addiction medicine and integrated behavioral health in my neck of the woods in um, Illinois. So just trying to think of a good hobby extracurricular I did. It sounds kind of bougie, but we took horseback riding lessons. We weren't that family. We weren't like, you know, 
uh, privileges was like Western, you know, like cowgirl type stuff. But um, it was a good hobby. It was a good extracurricular. Like you got experience, you know, like grooming the horses. We did some jumping and competition and stuff like that. But it kept you grounded because part of the job was to muck the uh, stalls. So you got a real good sense of, you know, <laughs> physical labor and appreciation and stuff. So, yeah, it was fun. I think that was a good character building um, thing that I got to do when I was oh maybe like third fourth grade so good times thank you Jen uh I, I I'm thinking that cleaning out the horse stalls may also have made me cry I don't know what to <laughs> about my personal childhood hey, but you, man. Gotta, you know that's grit <laughs> yeah absolutely um, and then we have Monica Harrison Hello, everybody. I'm Monica Harrison, a licensed clinical social worker, integrated care clinician, um, training and practice coach for the AIM Center. So, you know, military brat, you move around so often. So there's so many things. Um, I've already told you guys before, probably fourth grade was the first time of anything really outside of just your normal go home type situation. And, and that was clogging, which you all know about. We won't go there. Um, but otherwise, about fifth grade going into middle school, I really got into um, volleyball, softball, and cheerleading. And yes, cheerleading is a sport. Um, so I kind of did all of those. And those were my things all the way up into high school and then I guess I decided uh I was too cool for school I guess and ditched all of those and then was like in the pep squad with the band and you know all the all the other things that maybe I thought was a little bit cooler I love it um I guess no surprise at all that we were all like busy people had a lot of things to do um I'm gonna just add my introduction real quick so because I think when I introduce our guests we're gonna pretty much launch straight into our conversation so like I said at the top I'm Grace Pratt uh I don't know if I said that I'm Grace Pratt production editor of the podcast and I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City Oklahoma and like I said I did all the nerdy things read all the books uh did bands, took piano lessons for a while, but for sure it was an inside kid. <laughs> um, but it's been great to hear these things from your background. And I'm excited to introduce our guest today. So we are joined by Beth Seidler Schreider. Um, Beth is the Chief Behavioral Health Officer at Access Community Health Centers, and we are going to be really featuring Beth's program and the work they've done at her organization. Um, but Beth, would you start by introducing yourself? Yes, so I'm Beth Zeidler Schreider, um, a psychologist by training, and I'm the Chief Behavioral Health Officer at Access. Um, and I was a soccer kid. Um, so I just will share that part as the, growing up. Um, but I have two brothers. I was the only girl. And so I had um, my mom start me out in dance. And I just was not necessarily um, energized by that in the same way. Um, and so had an opportunity in third grade to start playing soccer and that's what paid for my college and kept kept me going and now I'm coaching U8 um, soccer here in Wanakee, Wisconsin. So yay, yay for soccer and yes, I was not the dancer. After many uh, illnesses on recital days, um, <laughs> my mom gave me a pass and let me um, try something else that more energized my soul. We actually have some serious athletes on this podcast because uh, be between Bridget and Beth, so Beth is doesn't like to toot her own horn, but I I do know that she. I think you still do you still hold the record at your college for. I gold? do Culver Stockton College Wildcats. 
81 career goals right here. Oh, yeah, that's that's serious. So between Missouri, Bridget and Monica, uh, we've got some serious athletes here. Well, Beth, we're so excited to have you here. Um, and we're going to really uh, lean into hearing more about what's been going on at Access and your role there and, and the work that you guys have done in your organization. Um, before we get to that, Natalia, is there news that we want to share? Um, yeah. So those of you who've been listening faithfully know that our conference is coming up here in a few weeks. I think we've got about three weeks till the conference gets going in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information, visit integratedcareconference.com. Um, you could be listening to this in two years, so it may not may may not make difference for you. But if you're listening now, register now. We do have a lot of people coming, so we've got we've hit 600 registrants just yesterday. So that means we'll probably hit somewhere over 700 or so uh, by the time we get to the conference date. And uh, hotel rooms are running out very quickly, uh, so definitely get those in place as well. So yeah, integratedcareconference.com. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and I wonder before you go on mute again, Naftali, if you would tell us a little bit, because this podcast this week and having Beth on was your idea, um, which I always appreciate a bit of assistance there with, you know, ideas for what we're going to talk about. And I'm curious kind of how this conversation came about and um, what was the thinking behind that for you? Yeah, well, you know, um, Access has uh, done a lot of things that I think are really crucial for other health systems and clinics uh, to model themselves after, particularly in the way that they have uh, been able to forge relationships outside of their health center to you know, leverage it on, on, the, on behalf of their care teams and, and patients. So just to give you a kind of a sense of what some of those things are, just recently, and this is actually going to be a presentation at the conference, uh, Access was able to advocate together with the Wisconsin Primary Healthcare Association for turning on uh, COCM codes in the state. Um, and then very recently, the general BHI code uh, in the state that, that, that is still to come in, in the next year or so. Um, and then to pilot that. Um, and that took years of collaborating across the state association and uh, with the Department of human services at the state level uh, to make this happen. Um, and a lot of times as, as clinics and clinicians, we, we feel powerless and we feel like we don't have avenues to make those things happen. Um, but Access has found ways to do that. The other space that Access is also something that I'm looking forward to hearing from Beth as well is in the area of substance abuse treatment. I mean, before MAT was even a thing, Access started what they call the health promotions clinic which was basically a clinic led by an addiction medicine specialist and a group of fellows and BHCs uh, to provide um, care for folks struggling with substance issues, um, including but not exclusive to Suboxone uh, care. And, uh, and then now Access is in a position to really be a state leader in that realm and help other clinics learn how to make this happen and normalize that for primary care. So there's a lot of a lot of those sorts of things that sometimes as clinicians or clinics we think is outside of our scope that um, Access has been able to do. And to her credit, Beth in particular, her sort of uh, networking skills and stick to is a big part of that. So Beth, I wonder if you could sort of start by telling us a little bit about 
what is it that gets you, gives you the confidence that you can like talk to people outside of the clinic and like ask for stuff? Because I think that's one of your gifts. Like you, you, you seem to like have this ability to like in a very persistent and yet friendly way, ask for what you need. Thank you for that, Naftali. You know, I have a good friend of mine who's from New York um, who used to say I was Midwest direct, um, which is different than um, East Coast direct. Um, and your your ability to be very friendly yet assertive um, in asking for what you need. And one of the things that I think is unique about the, the landscape in Wisconsin is this partnership we have with um, the Wisconsin Primary Healthcare Association, which is called WIPCA. Um, and there's some just amazing players there. Um, and they're our unifying body for our 19 um, community health centers and sister health centers in the state of Wisconsin. And so instead of me, right, just as a, a clinician of one um, approaching Wisconsin DHS or other things asking for things, it's more about collective impact in pooling um, our wants and needs in one cohesive way that is difficult to argue with, right? When we're talking about whole person health and that mental health is health, those are bipartisan um, discussion points, right? And that we want to support the wellness of Wisconsinites. And so I was able to work with the Wisconsin Collaborative for Healthcare Quality, um, WIPCA, the Wisconsin Psychiatric Association, to meet and to talk with Wisconsin DHS about what is important about collaborative care, right? And how can those codes be helpful? Um, and I will just own, like I grew up as a PCBH purist. Um, I grew up um, working in an FQHC. I trained under Tina Runyon um, in Springfield, Missouri. Then I came to Access and trained um, with Naftali and PCBH. Um, and so that was really where my sphere of understanding and influence was. But I was able to see all these benefits of collaborative care. And particularly when I think about some of our sister health centers, the benefit of that general BHI code um, and the care management piece. And so really taking a whole person health view and talking with DHS around why these codes are important. And you have to understand the reimbursement landscape um, that exists in Wisconsin. So health centers in Wisconsin get reimbursed at what's called the prospective payment system or PPS. And so each eligible encounter gets one reimbursement rate for those that have Medicaid. And so whether they see me, they see my medical provider, they see my consulting psychiatrist, those are each visits or encounters that we get the same reimbursement rate for. And the reason we get the same amount is it's, it's about whole person health. So it's all those other touches. So we have, you see our patient services team, we have interpreter services, we have our health benefits counselors, we have the registered dietitian, right? All of these other services that exist to wrap around the patient, but you have to tell the story. And I think that's the piece when you can narrate the impact on individual patients, the impact upstream, right? Around prevention and the importance of funding services within primary care and telling the story and connecting the dots for ultimately the people that are making the decisions around healthcare teams are getting paid and reimbursed for um, is really important. And as Naftali mentioned, I'm really persistent and, and I have a chance to, to ask the same thing in different ways um, in the event that I don't like the first answer. Um, and it's, it's not to be like annoying, right? But it's more of like, yes, I hear you, 
And um, could we think about looking at this in a different way? Could we think about ways to partner in this way? And I just want to give a huge shout out to WIPCA because I couldn't do this as a full-time, you know, leader clinician um, where I'm doing clinical care and I have a team of 15 to be able to, to approach and connect to get these advocacy pieces. But I can talk to them about what we're seeing on the front lines and community health centers, where are the pain points and how I need support and help. And here are some things I think could help. And then they're able to help advocate, right, in a more systematic way. Um, so to have a, a unifying body that one, ask clinicians what they want and need is unique and helpful. Um, but two, then to take action steps um, and I just get to talk and then they make it look pretty in a white paper and they, you know, can, you know bring it on to, to DHS or set up meetings is really a way that we're, I think, optimizing each other's skills and talents to help move healthcare forward in our state. There That's are amazing. Right? There's like, applause happening. Yeah. <laughs> there already are so many pearls, I think, coming through for our listeners and what you're saying, Beth, in terms of it's not just about the needs of one clinic or one clinician or one, um, you know, one group of people, but it's combining forces and really thinking about how can you maximize the perspectives of the resources that you have and the energy that you have, and also that you, you keep going. And if it doesn't work the first time you try it a little bit differently, I was going to ask you if you would back up a little bit, um, in terms of like your history, cause we're kind of starting at the end and, you know, these are exciting things that you guys have put into place and you can hear how, you know, there's been sort of a, a mutual pushing forward of like clinical advancements and then reimbursement advancements and like going kind of that recursive process. Um, but I'm curious a little bit about the history too, because you mentioned, you know, working as a clinician in the past and I was seeing on the website that you've been with Access since 2008. Um, so like, how has that evolution been for you and what has that looked like over time for, for you and for the system? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah. Just last month, I celebrated 15 years, um, yeah. at Access, which is awesome. Um, and I was just joking with Naftali, uh, I ended up in Wisconsin by complete accident and happenstance. Um, I met him at CFHA that was in Colorado and my um, husband at the time, like now he wanted to go to Colorado. So he had moved to Kansas city for me to do my internship at the university of Kansas medical center. So we were talking about postdoc and he's like, let's go to Colorado. And I was like, yes, I'm going to find a postdoc in Colorado and we're going to set down roots. So I met Natalia in Colorado totally thought he was from Colorado. So he's telling me all about this awesome program. I'm like, yes, this is great. This, he seems great. Like, this is going to be awesome. Where are you? And he tells me Madison, Wisconsin. And I was like, oh, that is not what I thought you were going to say. Um, and so I was like, well, this is still really great. And telling my husband, like, I know that's not Colorado, but this could be really cool. Um, and so I came and interviewed at Access. There's like 20 inches of snow on the ground. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this, um, if this is where I want to be. But after interviewing and seeing the mission of Access and the work that we were doing, I was like, this, this is where I belong. Um, and so I came as a postdoc and I never left. It is an amazing organization where you know, our, our mission is around improving health and improving lives. And it is my greatest professional privilege to be able to live my values every day at an organization where I feel like I'm making a difference. And I have awesome people that I work with. Um, so I had a chance to work with Naftali for eight years. Um, he was so foundational in my development as an integrated care professional. 
Um, and so when he left, um, I took over as the chief behavioral health officer. So I went from, you know, full-time clinical work to then um, being in an administrative role. And, you know, Neftali, as an innovator and the founder of a program, those are big shoes to fill. And that was intimidating, right? Of, can I do this? What is this going to look like? Um, we have different leadership styles. Um, and so how do you go from being a peer, right, to your, to your teammates to then being a supervisor? Um, and what does that look like? Um, and then, you know, now I'm a senior leader, right? So you're like, what, is, what does that mean? Um, and how do I really help chart a path forward? And, you know, there's been a lot of learning. Um, and I've had to be very intentional around my own self-care, um, extending myself the same grace, right, that I extend to others. Um, because leadership is hard. Um, it can be really challenging and you, you bear this like different pressure, right? When I felt like I was a clinician, I knew how to lead my work at work. Um, and when you start to manage people, you feel that responsibility, right? Of helping to create and maintain a culture where people feel valued, appreciated and can thrive. And so there's just been a lot that's happened then in the last several years, which I think it's now been seven or eight now since you have left at Access. I think it's coming on eight years. Yeah. So what has happened, right, since then? Well, I mean, we've grown as a team exponentially. Um, we have a really awesome training program. So as I mentioned, I was a postdoc, um, but 10 of our 12 um, BHCs trained at Access um, in some capacity. And so we've done this model of like train and retain, <laughs> train and retain. Um, and one of our really big emphasis is we want to have people get exposure to what it's like to work in a community health center, um, what it takes to serve um, a diverse population and to really partner with individuals in their healthcare and wellness journey. And then, you know, support a workforce that can go out. Um, and if it's not at access, that you can go anywhere um, and develop an integrated care program and feel ready to do so. And so that has been really cool. And yes, Bridget, I know you are trained and retained um, as well, which is, which is so, so important. And I think we're not gonna get what we need from the workforce solely by churning out more masters and doctoral level providers, right? We have to be able to, to leverage other team members um, and really invest in training of the healthcare team as a whole. And I think access has been an amazing place where because of our really robust integrated care program that we're tapping BHC team members to help with organizational and systems change. Um, so Dr. Megan Fondo on the behavioral health team is doing so much related to training um, and not just training of our you know, clinical trainees, but training on an organizational level related to trauma-based care and de-escalation, bias in groups, out groups, the way that we are inclusive um, on our teams. And so really making it um, a path forward. And I'm probably an access lifer, so I'm probably not going anywhere um, because I really do feel so strongly about our mission and we're doing a lot of really cool things. I feel like you need to put that access lifer on a shirt. <laughs> Put it on a shirt and wear it to the conference. All right, I'll um, see what I can do, Monica. I tell you what, like listening to you and this, I feel like is also a, a primer for the conference because it's one of the things that I really enjoy about the conference is to be around other like-minded individuals. It's just something that just 
fires me up a little bit. So like listening to you talk, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got questions down workforce for her. I got questions down leadership for her. I have questions down advocacy for her. Like where where to start? Uh, lately, advocacy has been more on the brain um, because of a webinar that's coming up around advocacy. So I want to go that way first. One of the things that I often, so agreed with everything you said about like the story and the context, because that's the piece that the decision makers typically don't have, right? The people that make all these decisions about what can or can't be done in policy. So oftentimes I've said policy is practice and practice is policy. Like you need both with this free flowing conversation. But what I often hear and get from individuals is like they're doing their work and like, where do I start? Like, where do I even just start? I know that there's an issue, especially if I'm working, you know, in my organization, at least my organization has this issue and it's not an organizational issue, it's more a systemic issue, but not really knowing kind of where to start. Who do I need to collaborate with? Like just some of those things that I think is sometimes a struggle for the clinician who is like, head down doing the work. So just wondering how you dipped your toe uh, and now like your whole body into the advocacy field. Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important is advocacy work, I think is is one of the many hats, right, that BHC wears. Um, so you're used to advocating for our patients, right, um, in an individual kind of setting, right, within our, our organizations. This gave me an opportunity for advocacy, right, on a bigger scale. And that's the part where I think about like, okay, this doesn't just affect access, right? This is impacting how the system works and potentially ways that we're not getting reimbursed for work that would allow us to build our workforce, to grow more, right? To do more. And we know there's a ton of unmet need. And so, you know, one of the things is networking, right? Like it's about connecting with other people, doing this work, finding out what interests them. And then, you know, we've had a time where we met at CFHA even where other people in Wisconsin that like, I'm in the same state, but I, I saw them, right? As CFHA, because it was a unifying place, right? We were, um, I was the co-chair for the Madison virtual conference. And we had, you know, a, a breakout that was Wisconsin people doing integrated care. And we were able to talk about like, what are some of our shared challenges and struggles? And then we were able to kind of highlight what are some of the things that we can have consensus around and say, let's push that forward. And so there were discussions with, you know, the Wisconsin psychiatric association and our Wisconsin, um, Collaborative for Healthcare Quality and WIPCA. And so it's really about seeking out other organizations and asking like, who is your point of contact? Who could I talk to about that? And seeing what you can have some good consensus around and unifying the ask. And I think that's a really important piece because otherwise we start all asking for different things um, and it, it, it dilutes the impact, right? Because I can't do them all. And so to be able to say like COCM codes, right? In the state of Wisconsin are so, so important. And I think that is really crucial. I will also own though, that now that I'm the chief behavioral health officer, I only do 20% clinical time. And that's a big difference, right? Where I used to do 80% clinical, 20% administrative, where I now supervise people and I do senior leadership meetings and strategy meetings and all of those other things. But I have time carved out specifically to be able to innovate, to advocate, um, to take forth these issues. And so I think that's a really important point as well, 
Because otherwise, when you're in the trenches and you're just doing it every day, it can feel like one more thing that you don't necessarily have the capacity for. And so when I think about how we develop leadership positions, it's about creating that little bit of extra, right? You know, cushion to take on things like passion projects like this. Um, But it's also to help innovate and move your program forward. But it has to come from somewhere. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a daughter, right? I'm a sister. There are many things outside of my role at Access that are important to me. And so I don't necessarily want to, to give up, right, that side of time to do these other things. So how do I build that into my workday to move this work forward? That's so powerful about protecting time and especially protecting time for creativity and time for something new. Um, Cause that is so energizing when you get to pursue a passion and when you get to another thing, I think that's so energizing that I hear you saying that, that we've heard from, you know, other innovators that we've had on the podcast is like the importance of relationships. I mean, you're talking about relationships with your patients that inspire ideas. And like you have retained that 20% clinical time. I feel pretty positive because of that connection to the work and connection to the people that that gives you, but then also connections and relationship with other people that are doing this work, connections and relationship with the leaders in your state, relationships across the organization and across different ideas. And those conversations, like I also, you know, in conference, it's like the little margins, it's the thing around the edges. And we share our formal presentations and we share, you know, our peer reviewed stuff, but so many times it's the hallway chats or it's the in-between like, oh my gosh, that just gave me this idea. And so much grows out of that. So just like relationship, relationship, relationship. And there's, there's some great stuff uh, on the chat here that I want to point out that amplifies some of this as well. You know, I think the protected time that actually comes from relationships Beth, and you can you can talk to this a little bit, but th- there's a really synergistic relationship that you have with the CMO, right, at Access, and then and and the CEO at Access, both of who are MDs, and their ability your their ability to form a relationship with you lets helps them to understand. Actually, this is to Access's benefit. This is part of our strategic advantage that we give Beth this protected time. You know, Jen put in the chat how like her site, and you've talked about this before, Jen, many times about how it's been hard for you to advocate at your center because you're seen as a widget maker, right? You you produce RVUs yep. and that's the way you're measured, right? Um, and I, actually, Jen, I wonder, I wonder as a contrast, like, do you feel like you have that relationship with those key players, or is that one of the one of the key barriers there? Yeah, I mean, it's turnover is one of our big challenges. We got a new CEO a little over a year ago. We never had a CMO ever until a few months ago. So I think we're at our beginning of our developmental trajectory with forming those relationships. So I'm hopeful that that will keep growing, but we're at the start, you know, so it's, it's literally carving out a vision of what a leadership role could be for someone who was just thought of as 100% clinical previously. And that's so foreign that there's no context. So you have to like create the context and then get them to buy into it all the while hustling for your worth, (laughs) you know, doing the work in real time. And it's, it's a lot. (laughs) So. And the thing is that the, the, and this is going to sound very Zen-like, right. But I've always been a big believer that if you pursue the right thing, the money will follow. 
you know, pursuing short-term financial gain rarely gets you to your long-term goals. And, and so, you know, what's really fascinating to me about Beth's story is that um, when you look at it at this point, access investing in people like Beth, and Beth is not the only one that has protected time. Like she's talking about Megan and other folks on the team that have protected time to develop their areas, whether it's in the area of workforce, whether it's an area of advocating on state level and, and program development, things like that. But they invested many years where the where this service, if you were to look at it as an isolated service, wasn't um, breaking even as a service, right? That would be like my era there as the the chief, right at the time that I left, we were getting close to breaking even most years, but it was still, you know, by the skin of our teeth, right? Kind of a thing. We're just getting to a place where we were with grants and funding and all that. And then where Beth has taken this with the advocacy efforts is to a point where they're not just breaking even, they're profitable. They're not only like profitable, but they're at a place where nearly every, and this blows my mind, and for someone who's been in integrated care for 22 years, by next year, nearly every activity they do as a team is going to be reimbursable. Nearly every activity. I'm talking about e-consults with the consulting psychiatrist, care coordination work, FaceTime with the patient, uh, consulting time with the psychiatrist that's related to COCM work, right? Like basically... You know, I, I mean, I don't know, Beth, you can say this better than I could, but it, it seems to me like 90, 95% of all the activity that you're engaged in as a, as a team is, is going to be fully reimbursable. Like that blows my mind. Yes. Um, and I think that's one of the big things that when we think about advocacy, it's been about not just showing our worth clinically, because my CEO is one of our huge referrers. He's a family practice physician. He still sees patients. Our CMO still sees patients and they refer, right? So they they have the buy-in around why integrated care is important and it's helped us um, navigate the pandemic. It's helped support, you know, reduction of physician burnout, retention, all of those things. Um, but the piece about getting paid for the work that we do, right? And ensuring that we're getting reimbursed that we can do more is really, really important. And so the collaborative care codes just went live, right, in our state um, in July of 2022. It didn't include the general BHI code. So we've been advocating around that. We've gotten DHS to say, yes, we're going to you know, prove it. It's going to be the next six to 12 months before it's implemented. It was important for general BHI code because there are places in our state that don't have consulting psychiatry, right? So COCM doesn't necessarily work. And there's other times where 20 minutes of a dose of treatment, which is what the BHI code, right, notes, is all that person needs. And so it doesn't have to be 60 minutes. But we had to really get into the weeds around how we get reimbursed, what that looks like, and then think about how do we scale it. And so it's about keeping tabs, right, on the new codes that come out. We've been doing written psychiatric consultations at Access for over a decade. We've never gotten paid for any of them until last month. Because the those asynchronous right time um, began to be reimbursed by by Medicaid, and so we developed an e-consult pathway. That's huge when you think about the fiscal investment in a psychiatrist, right? Like they're a very valuable resource, um, and they do tons of work to support population health, educate our providers, move care forward. But there was no way to capture that, 
And so now we're leveraging all of these different ways to get paid for all of the extra work that it takes to support really quality of care. Um, and so I've had meetings with our medical operations strategy team around how do we quantify this? What is the vision around the general BHI codes? Well, we have a really robust said treatment program. We just won the WIPCA Performance Excellence Award, which is one of the things I thought I was going to talk about today to just highlight. Um, but we're not stopping there, right? With this general BHI code, our nurse care managers that are doing outreach to our patients that are receiving buprenorphine or Vivitrol for an opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder are doing 20 minutes of care coordination every month already. Um, but can we hire more nurses to do more of that, right? If we can get reimbursed for that important work? Yes. And so we're already talking about how would we leverage that code um, and building our teams. And I mentioned we get paid right on this PPS perspective payment system. But that's the right now, right? To, to maximize what we're doing to get reimbursed for it so we can do more. But it's just a, one more step from the larger strategic idea around value-based payments, right? You start building the care teams that ultimately support optimal outcomes that when we do get to that point as a state, we've got our teams well-established. We've got a model of care that is working, that is patient-centered, and that's already hitting, right, the quadruple aim. But it's about these steps. And I'm a doer, so I like to do things and I like things to move quickly. Um, however, I've had to really like temper, right? Like my expectations of knowing change is slow. Um, and so how do I um, invest in the now, right? With an eye to the future, while you're also foreshadowing for people what you hope to see come because those plant seeds, right? And that is slow sometimes to mature, but we will get there. Um, and I'm just really proud of, of the state, um, of access and the current um, where we're at, but there's definitely much more on the horizon. Can you teach us a little more about the prospective payment system? That's so cool. It's different than fee for service. Like where I am in Illinois, if I charge a collaborative care code, a 99492, we charge 305 bucks. We get paid 69 bucks by Illinois Medicaid. So it's a fraction. Is this a different spin it's on that or is it still like a fraction? No, so we are because, and this is only for Medicaid patients, right? Okay. So it has to be a patient with Medicaid. So we get reimbursed at a different rate for commercial insurance and access is unique because we see the uninsured, right? Mm -hmm. On the sliding fee scale that be, as an FQHC, we see those with Badger Care, which is our Wisconsin Medicaid, and we see those with commercial insurance. Okay. So for those that have Badger Care or Medicaid, we mm -hmm. get one rate. Is it and competitive? That, like, is it? A, it is like competitive. How, it what percentage is it like, rate. is it it's, like, it's what not by a percentage. It's like okay. this $1 amount is what you get for each okay. eligible encounter. So it's okay. not like, oh, we're going to give you this amount and then give you half. It's each eligible mm -hmm. encounter gets this amount okay. um, for seeing them, but they have to be eligible encounters. And mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily like a nurse visit, right? That's not an mm -hmm. eligible encounter with a provider. It has to be with a BHC clinician, one of our dental providers, our medical provider, our psychiatrist, those are like billable encounters. But it's intentionally done that way because and it's a competitive reimbursement because it covers the whole cost, right, of, of this population in that all those extra things that you're doing while they're there, right, that aren't necessarily reimbursable. And then we have an opportunity to work with Wisconsin DHS for what we would call a change in scope. Um, if you start doing more or offering more, um, you start seeing more patients. Um, so for example, and you have to meet a certain threshold of investment. 
Um, but if we continue to do more, right, related to collaborative care and add more BHCs and add more care managers, then I could talk to the state to say, here's, here's what we've all done, and it passes that threshold. Um, so it really is, I think, a unique piece for how FQHCs, right, are reimbursed um, in our state that wouldn't be applicable, right, to your sure, setting. Sure, sure. Um, and that's where I think it's really important to just know what is your patient population? What is your payer mix? Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, like, what's your mission? And yeah. I think that has been so crucial. Um, one of the other things I was talking to Naftali about that I'm so proud of is the relationship I have with our CFO. And our CFO is really collaborative in when I say, hey, we need to think about this and how this impacts people's access to behavioral health services. Um, that we have a sliding fee scale, right? That's based on, you know, what is governed by HRSA, but we have a separate sliding fee scale for behavioral health visits. They're not the same slide as our medical provider visits. And the reason we looked at that is for the warm handoff, right? So if I have a patient that has a slide and maybe it's $20 or $40 to see their medical provider, they might not have the 20 or $40 to then also see a BHC that day. And what they told me was I couldn't just waive it, right? That that wasn't a possibility. So instead, um, of in like on the back end, you know, you write charges off and things, but most of the time our patients that are uninsured or have significant fiscal, you know, concerns don't want to take on, right? Paying something they know they can't pay with the hope it'll get written off later. So instead we deeply discounted it on the front end. So if you have a tier four discount at access, you would have a $0 to see behavioral health. A tier three is $3 then $6, then $9, and the most it would be to have a handoff to see behavioral health if you're uninsured or underinsured would be $18. That's really important when we think about the No Surprises Act with transparency and partnership and engagement with our patients um, to say, yes, we will, you know, there's a bill where we bill for this visit and they say, what is it, right? Um, that we can say transparently um, what that would be. And we've had a lot more yeses, right, to handoffs because it's like, I can engage with that, right? I don't have to choose between whether or not I have money for rent or to buy food um, versus prioritizing my mental health. It's saying your mental health is health and we're gonna invest in making sure that we remove cost barriers to getting the care you need. It's interesting when like hearing you talk about those very specific things to your state, your clinic, your system, because as a, as a listener, and I'm imagining some of our listeners are thinking, well, that's really different from my system. But I imagine if we asked you, you could name like some of these things started as barriers and you pivoted them to like these constraints in some ways make you more creative because you have to figure out, okay, here's what will work. Here's what won't work for my site. So I'm not going to pursue this other really cool thing or this other in a like way that this other clinic is doing it. Um, because these things that maybe are like, you know, they told you like, you can't just write it off. Okay. Well, right. that's frustrating, right. To not just right. be able to be like, okay, no, but thinking about, okay, but what will this look like? Or how does that lead me to a different idea? I feel like it's such an important way to pivot and to look at our, our barriers or constraints as like a container to help us sort of steer into a different spot of creativity. Well, and I think it's also about, again, it goes back to relationships, Grace, right? Like our CFO is willing to have this conversation with me where, you know, she's like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. We haven't ever done that before. And I was like, but could we, <laughs> right? And and she was like, 
let me think about it. Um, and so we brought it back and we looked at it. And so there's a separate fee schedule, right, for behavioral health visits. And so it removed that barrier. It removed a pain point for my team. It made it more accessible. So the percent of, you know, uninsured patients seeing behavioral health is higher than it's ever been. Um, and it's about removing barriers to care. Similarly, it was the same with some of our SUD work, right? So as an FQHC, we have the slide and it costs a certain amount. Um, they apply to the pharmacy too. And so if you were getting started on buprenorphine and you had, you know, to fill your prescription every week, if it was $25 a fill, you could get a month, but because we're doing it week by week because you're early in recovery, then you're paying $100. That could be cost prohibitive, right? To be able to do that and to to get there. So we worked with our CFO and leveraging our 340B, right? At Christing as an FQHC. So you can get Narcan or Buke as an uninsured patient if you've applied for our clinic discount for a dollar a fill because it's removing that barrier, right? So it's that investment piece um, in, in our patients, in the mission, in population health, in harm reduction. Um, but our CFO wouldn't have known that, right? If we weren't sitting down and talking and had the relational currency to say, this is a barrier. And I have a patient who's uninsured that doesn't have $25 to get Narcan, um, doesn't have transportation to get to public health to get it free. How can we leverage our pharmacy and our pharmacy benefit to get Narcan in her hands? So this is incredibly inspiring. And for those of you out there who are listening to this, I hope this is inspiring to you and helps you kind of think through, yeah, if I can build those relationships internally, that's the place to start, right? Because um, Beth didn't go out there on her own and just like start doing all this stuff with WIPCA and WCHQ. She went there because she she really was platformed by her organization and had the full support of her organization to look down the road. And I hope it's also inspiring for you all listening out there because you hear this and you're like, oh, wow, like they intentionally reduced the amount of money they're getting from patients because they thought in the long run, this is going to be better for us, right? And, and Access is not a struggling financial clinic. Like Access is on a growth pattern, not a contraction pattern. So it, it just is, is an incentive, hopefully, for those of you out there to inspire your leaders to be more visionary in that sense, to shoot for, and I love, love this quote by Wayne Gretzky, you know, be where the puck will be. Don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck will be, right? That's how you score. Um, and, and I think that's what's inspiring because it's not not all of this is about like optimizing billing and you know extracting as much current day value as you possibly can. You know, you shouldn't really be operating healthcare like a private equity fund. You, if you if you think about the things that are really important to your care teams and to your patients. That actually is the best financial decision 99% of the time. Uh, and, and this is this is a real life story of that, of an organization that is thriving financially, growing, and making these value-based decisions. You mean to tell me they looked at health equity for the patient population that they're working with? That's what you're trying to tell me. Yeah, amazingly enough, it pays to something. do that. Well, I mean, it's on our strategic plan, Monica. It's called out, right? Of like our strategic plan highlights the focus on reduction in health disparities, promoting health equity, ensuring right equitable access to quality care. Um, the other thing I want to highlight here is how we bring these 
wins clinically and celebrate our care teams back. Um, so when we won, right, the WIPCA Sud Award, we like did a trophy traveling around to the clinics and we had coffee and pastries and just had a moment to collectively celebrate um, each team member, right? Because it went from the registration to the support staff, to our medical clinical aides, our nurses, our medical providers, our BHCs, our BHCCs, right? It's everybody. And we took a minute to just pause and reflect on we're change agents, right? We're partnering with our patients for better health, for more equitable health. And sometimes it's nice to have external validation, right? With a fancy trophy from WIPCA, um, but we don't have to just wait for that, right? Like we can take a minute to share gratitude and shout out and say like, we're making a difference. And so connecting that back, I think for people is so important. And sometimes in the grind of the day, um, we miss that. And so being intentional to pause and to celebrate the wins is so important. Well, yeah, Bridget just gave you a, a really good shout out theme song for the next time when the trophy's coming through. You you play your T-Pain, all I do is win, 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 no matter what, as the trophy comes on through the clinic. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> I love well, it. it. You know, not just to underscore that, uh, you know, if I was, if I was like, talking to uh, C-suite level folks, you know, who are very, usually very anxious about financial stuff. And, and, and just, they, sometimes they allow that anxiety to drive their decision-making, which is the worst way to lead. Right. And, and, and I think one of the nuggets here is if you think about how access invested, it invested in its people. And one of the side effects of that, that is, is one of the things that organizations ignore the most to their detriment is that you retain your people. So the stability of your workforce and your leadership is huge for reaping long-term rewards financially. Because if you're not constantly, as you said, Jen, before, dealing with turnover, you're not constantly starting things over, starting initiatives, taking different roads, going different directions. Uh, and that that's really a big piece of the, the uh, sort of secret sauce there, that these investments take time to pay off, but they pay off because you retain your staff. And, and that celebration is part of it, that acknowledgement, that empowerment, that's all part of keeping people engaged and involved in your mission down the road, that has to reap rewards for you financially and otherwise. The other thing I will say that that Neff that I think is so important is it's that workforce development piece and developing intentional pathways for people for advancement. Um, so our BHCCs, right, are now bachelor's trained, um, but there's opportunities to then go to our social work fellowship. And I have one now that's in a, ma a master's level program. That's the goal. We've got our postdoctoral fellowship. That's a pathway, right, to, to go ahead and moving into then as a licensed um, psychologist. We're an internship training site. We have practicum level students. And then on an organizational level, you know, BHC has been doing that since Neff started our program in 2006. But now organizationally, we have a medical assistant training program. We have a dental assistant training program. And it's that piece around how do you invest in your people? How do you give opportunities for advancement? And then how do you retain, right? Really committed and talented people that are unified around a shared mission. This has been such a fantastic conversation. And I'm so thankful, Beth, that you joined us. I wonder if you have any final thoughts or any closing words that you want to share before we wrap up. 
I just want to thank you for the invite and the opportunity to, to highlight the, the work we're doing at Access. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all in a few weeks in Phoenix. Awesome. Well, um, I'm sure there's a lot to think about for our listeners. I know my wheels are turning. We always can continue this conversation on the CFHA listserv. Of course, we can, we will continue the conversation in person and we will talk to you again next month. But first, let's go to our closing thought. Courage is contagious. A courageous leader is what we all aspire to be. And in that process, there's a lot that goes into taking care of yourself and also allowing opportunities to be vulnerable. I leave you with two quotes from Brene Brown's work on leadership, on vulnerability, and self-compassion. She reminds us, the courage to be vulnerable is not about winning or losing. It's about the courage to show up when you cannot predict or control the outcome. And in regards to self-compassion, she says, talk to yourself the way you'd like to talk to someone you love. Most of us shame, belittle, and criticize ourselves in ways we'd never think of doing to others. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.